Warning, this podcast should not be downloaded using government equipment, listened to during duty time, or sent to others using government equipment, because this podcast has the potential to suggest actions to be taken in support or against legislation. Do not use your government email address or government phone in contacting your lawmakers. Hello, and welcome to the AFGE Young Podcast. My name is Andre Cunningham. Today I am joined by David Mullet, AFGE National Vice President for District 5, Deborah Tucson, National Women's Advisory Coordinator for District 2, and Taekwon Murray, AFGE Black Board Member, and Kendrick Roberson, AFGE Black Chairman. And today we'll be discussing AFGE Black and Black history in labor. To get started, how is everyone doing? And First, what I'll do is I'll go around the room because I know it's a possibility we talk over each other. So we'll start with you, Miss Deborah. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Mr. Roberson? Oh, absolutely fantastic. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Mr. Murray? I'm doing awesome. Great. And Mr. Mullet? Great. Doing great. Good to be here. Wonderful. Thank you. So, and I, for one, if I complain, I would be ungrateful. So all is well in my universe. Alrighty. So to jump into our conversation today, looking forward to a very exciting conversation uh, surrounding AFGE Black. So the first question that I get started with is, why did AFGE create the Black AFGE Black Constituency Group? Sure, I think I'll, I'll jump in with that, right? Uh, I, I'll tell you, it, it, the reason that we created it was because there was a definite need for it, right? AFGE has been around for over 80 years, right? And we have never had a black constituency group. People have wanted it in the past, right? But we were never in the place uh, as a union to, to bring this forward, right? So that we can raise the issues that black folks are experiencing within our union and increase solidarity that way. And so finally, you know, especially after you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protest and, and us trying to come together and build this solidarity, we were able to establish this AFGE Black constituency group, which has had great results so far, especially even looking at uh, the Black History Month events that we've had for 2022. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for that, Mr. Roberson. So what is the goal slash mission of the AFGE Black Constituency Group? I know you shared the origin of why it was established, but what are what's the goal and the mission? Oh, uh, NPP Mullet, you want to talk about that or? Sure, I will take a stab at that. Some of the some of the goals are to bring to the forefront the issues that are facing the Black community to educate the rest of our membership of the importance of them being a part of support for that and welcome them into the group. It's just a overview of some of the goals that we had in mind when we were establishing a constituency group. Wonderful. So looking, if I may ask in between, so um, we just shared a goal and a mission for the AFGE Black Constituency Group. Where do you see the AFGE Black three years from now, the impact um, of the AFGE Black Constituency Group? Yeah, I'll, I'll give this one to Rev, Reverend Dr. Murray. Well, I believe in the next three years, just looking at the things that we've been doing thus far, I believe the membership is going to grow tremendously and we're going to have a major impact on AFGE, um, so all federal places, and not just AFGE, I believe on other unions as well. We will have a major impact on them as they see us as leaders um, and, and leading the way for them to develop certain programs and us just just standing out. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And how do our members get involved with AFGE Black? Ms. Tucson? Well, I, um, I think like anything else that, um, you know, AFGE out there, we will hope that um, we will put put out that um, this is something great to be part of, um, to learn about, uh, to enhance, um, going to the website, AFGE website, um, 
and hopefully we will be listed on there where if you want to learn more about black um and not go ahead and and not just that not just that you know for i guess for people my age and younger i'm not saying anyone here is old (laughs) but for i guess people my age and younger you know i'm i'm 30 30 how old am i 38 so um, a lot of us are on social media so that's another way people will be able to access us is through social media we have facebook i'm pretty sure we have instagram if we don't we get all of that stuff but we we have those outlets that, uh, that's available to everyone as well not just the website absolutely and i would like to commend um i would like to commend you all for the content that has been most recently shared and ever since the establish uh the establishing of the facebook group the information that has been shared within the um the afge black page it's second to none it's phenomenal very educational very informational uh really engaging and looking forward to more of that information in the future because again out of sight out of mind and to have it present Mm -hmm. and have relevant all of it is relevant but to have the relevant history being shared with us not only in february but all month is black history so we're looking forward to a lot more of that content being shared with our members all righty so Let's jump into black history in labor. So the overarching um, tone of where these next few questions are going is ultimately addressing mental health within the black community. So the first question that I'm going to ask is, they say you stop growing at the age you experienced trauma. What age did you stop growing and do you mind sharing what that trauma was? Um, I like to jump on that, you know, when I, um, when I looked at those questions, I don't know if I stopped growing, but I think I became more aware, um, um, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Now I'm come from New York, Harlem, and I can remember as a young child, um, I might've been 10, 11, um, the uprising that took place in Harlem. Because they had taken away our leader for the Harlem community, for the black community. I wouldn't say do that stop growing. I think I became more aware of, of being black, what was going on around the impact that this man, he was our savior. He was the black folks, quote unquote, savior. And when they took his life, um, I think I became more aware of who I am and what I am and um, how it impact black people and how it impact the people that lived in Harlem. Absolutely. And Miss Deborah, if I may ask, yes. so with, with that happening uh, and with that taking place, did that create any reservation or any fear within you based on seeing what transpired and the fear that if you make a stance, a similar stance that, and unfavorable means or outcomes could make it to your doorstep? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the fear um, that they took his life and now they was out to get the rest of us. That's that's a child's thinking. Why did they take mm-hmm. this man that was so uh, on the mountaintop, spreading the, the message of love and not hate, nonviolence, and so the fear was, well, as a child, they took his life, you know, they probably can come and take our lives. They can come and try to want to destroy us. Um, mine, like people that, you know, talked about being, uh, uh, we wanted justice, but we wanted it in a nonviolence way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Amazing, right. can I can ask me, being, being, being probably the senior, of this with this group with no offense is that i like deborah don't don't ascribe to the fact that an individual stopped growing because i think if we look through some of the psychological history talk about uh post-trauma growth what happens and what type of things need to be in place mine would go back to uh the integration of school to actually be openly treated differently than a white counterpart beside you to be told things like you're not capable. 
But in the background, in the background of that was a sharecropper grandmother who said, wait, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible shows us that we are capable of all things. We created like everyone else. And so that positive influence actually pushed me. So when we start looking at, at the fact that how can a sharecropper, ninth grade, not nine year old with a third grade education, have this wisdom to push you forward to say, no, you're no less than anyone else, is you treat people the way you want to be treated. If a person decides to call you Andre, they've opened up the door for you to call them David. They're not going to call you Mr. Cunningham. You have no responsibility. So I think that the trauma, the trauma took place, but with what was behind us as far as the pushing, that you're capable of all these things, not only pushing, but the expectation, you will do these things. You will do, you will do well. You will do your best. You do not accept the negative uh, influence. And some of the things you have to be concerned about is how that push us and propel us sometimes in some aggressive direction because I was an aggressive, I was an aggressive youth because uh, when, as Deborah was speaking, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, you know, there was riot times in Newark and it was like, put your hands on somebody who don't look like you, you know, even though it, even though uh, uh, they've done nothing to you. And I think that accepting the better of two pushes for society was to accept Dr. Martin Luther King versus Malcolm. First plant who would push who were pushing the aggressive side of that that by any means necessary. So yeah, I think it's I think it's more of a post traumatic growth that takes place. Absolutely. Tremendous responses. And if I may interject and share my response um, to this question to framework. Now, phenomenal responses, and I see some of that in my own experiences. So I'll share a story. Growing up in Jamaica, I was maybe five years old, and my mom would take me to school every morning. Well, this one particular morning, she was on her way out, and she asked, she told her boss, I will be right back. I'm going to take Andre to school. Her boss responded, do not worry about coming back, because it seems as though it's more important for you to have a child than it is for you to have a job. My mom then said that I squeezed her fingers and I said, mom, I can do it. And my mom says, I can do what? And I said, I can take myself to school. So it was survival mode. It was either my mom took me to school, but we wouldn't have any money to survive or I figure it out. Well, that moment in my life, something transformational happened. I did figure out how to get to school but I stopped relying on the adults in my life. At that point, I knew I must become an adult. Everything else I was dealing with as a child had to go out the window. But in my adulthood now, I'm in the union and I find that the experience that I experienced that my mom was going through, I do not desire that for any of my coworkers to ever be put in a position where they either have to choose providing a roof over that child's head or maintaining their employment. So I could see how that trauma at seven years old, I made it up, made a, uh, a commitment in my mind to protect everyone that was in my mom in my situation. And at that point it did, I, it, it made me very reluctant and hesitant to ever ask for help because the person that I could depend the most on was in a situation not that they didn't want to help, but it's just that they were given ultimatums on either to take care of me or to help themselves. So I thought to share with you on how that trauma stimmed my growth from actually matriculating into um, the child or the adult that I'm supposed to be. But now in my adulthood, how I've taken the emotions from that day into my advocation in the work that I do right now. I commend you, Andre, and I want to share my um, story also, because when I um, received the questions, I started thinking about um, traumas, and the question was stimulating because it made me think about some things. When did I stop growing? That was the biggest part of it to me, and I was reminded <laughs> as I was reminiscing, thinking about my childhood growing up in New York. I'm from New York, growing up in the Bronx. And uh, and then my grandparents in Brooklyn, so I'm going in between. 
And I remember on 140th Street in the Bronx during the crack epidemic, whatever, looking out the window and seeing lines, literally lines in front of my elementary school, PS40, of people standing there to buy drugs. And then seeing that same that same thing enter my house, which was my mother. So my mother ended up um, um, started using drugs. And not only that, during that same time frame, I was molested as a child. So with all of that trauma and then growing up, getting into junior high school and my mother basically running the streets all the time, me in the Bronx trying to take care of my younger siblings, my at the time, my my one is five years younger than me. The other two are like fifteen years younger than me. Wow. So now I'm I'm the oldest. My father died when I was seven. He was military, in jail, and all of that. So it was a lot. And I remember one day just going through all that, trying to be the man of the house, trying to be the big brother, trying to be the dad, trying to do all of this. It was overwhelming. And and I tell this story. I've told the story a few times in church also how I remember wanting to give up. And I think that was the moment where I felt like I was growing too fast that I wanted it to stop because I couldn't enjoy my youth. And and I think I, re- I remember it was on 150th Street, <laughs> Titton and Wells in the Bronx, where I'm like, you know what? I want to end this. And I actually stepped on the ledge of my window. We was we lived on the fifth floor. And I was ready to jump. But the saving grace was that this window was one of them crazy windows. Sometimes it opened. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes when it did open, it slid back down closed on you. So on this day, when, when I was at my lowest, the window did one of those numbers. It closed on me. So for me, that was like a rebirthing. So it wasn't just uh, that I stopped growing from the trauma. It was a rebirthing also, because after that, that's when I gave my life to God and got saved. And that's when I, I set a mission for myself. Instead of dealing or, or blaming others about what I'm going through and what my what I don't have, what I want, all that stuff not having, I decided to take control. And at that moment, that's when a lot of people were still mad at me to this day. I decided to leave New York. I'm in high school now. I decided to leave New York and come to go to South Carolina to go to college. At that time, soon at the same time I was leaving, was the same time my mother came and told me, she said, hey, I've been diagnosed with HIV. That was something else, more traumatizing. Not only that, soon as I was leaving also, um, um, ACS or Child Protective Services came and they took my my younger siblings. So now I'm leaving to go to college as a freshman with all this baggage, with all this trauma. Couldn't figure out what I wanted to study. And then I realized, you know what? I want to go into social work. Went into social work, fast forward, graduated, and then I decided, once again, take control, take control. I got a job with in Georgia with uh, DFACS doing child protective services because I wanted to learn as much as I could. And, and then I left and got hired with my current employee of employment, Social Security. But in the, in the midst of, I decided to go back because my siblings are still young. And I got them out of foster care myself because I refuse to let them go into the system and stay stuck in that system and not who know who I was when I was the one there literally changing their diapers, feeding them, watching them. I missed almost 200 days of school my senior year for high school, but I still was able to graduate. I don't know how it, how, it, how it worked out, but I was still able to graduate. So I, 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 not only did I get my siblings out of um, foster care, I just went ahead and adopted them. So I adopted them. They're doing well now. They're graduating college and everything now. And, and, and the other one, I don't know where he at. He keeps moving, but he's somewhere in Indianapolis or whatever he said now. Um, 
But I say that to say this, no matter what the trauma may be, I did seek counseling. I did seek therapy because I found it beneficial. Sometimes it wasn't a professional licensed counselor. Sometimes it was my pastor. It was a friend that I had that was just able and willing to listen to me and give me sound advice. So when I read this question, I just wanted to share my story and let people know that there is nothing wrong because there's a stigma on counseling and mental health and everything. We all go through it. But the thing is, we have to be willing to acknowledge it and be willing to to seek out help, however you may need it. So, um, yeah, I, I still now, sometimes I, I have my friends that's counselors, professional counselors. I have my other degrees that's with counseling background. I'm not licensed, but I have the background in it. So, so I help others as well. But trauma is real. And I feel if you learn to take the steps to learn to take control of the issues and gain control back of your life and believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you and that you are more than a conqueror, then you can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. So it doesn't matter how bad or how, how traumatic it may have been or was. You can still push yourself and use that as my as your fuel because that's what I do every day. And now uh, I'm gonna shut up because I like to talk a lot. But um, <laughs> I'm a preacher. But uh, but but now I take my role as a minister of the gospel and with the background of social work, and I love to advocate for those who don't have a voice. So that is that is my big thing, and that's why even as a rep. In the in uh with AFG and in my offices that I'm over, uh management some they, they don't really like me that much because I'm the one that's going to stand up and defend those who are too afraid to defend themselves. When I was young, I was too afraid to defend myself. Now that I'm older and learned how to take control, I refuse to let anyone misuse me or anyone else around me. All right, I'm done. Take one. <laughs> All really? right. Wow. Uh, I am. I am moved, touched, and inspired. I was having the chills as you were talking, King. Man, I, I appreciate that. Is and you know, it's rare that I share it. I share bits and pieces of the story, but um, but I just felt like I said when I saw that question, I just felt it was necessary for someone to hear it because I found. Through um, giving my testimony that there are so many people that have experienced similar traumas that I have. So just to let somebody know that you're not alone out there. There are others like you that went through it and they have pushed through it. So just to give someone some encouragement that it may hurt because it's going to hurt, but just keep pushing. Keep fighting because not only does God got your back, but if you need me, I got your back too. Peace, King. Love it. Oh, that is that is deep. All right. Um, Kenny, I know you didn't get an opportunity to share, my friend. Oh no, I'm I'm all right. You know, we just I I, I was so moved by <laughs> by Taekwon's story, by his by his uh experience. You know, we can I think we can use that and, and move on to the next questions and kind of Absolutely. build on that. I, I like it a lot. Absolutely. So our next question is, how were you able to unleash your inner child's max potential? In other words, how did you heal yourself? So I know Taekwon hit a little bit um, in regards to seeking therapy, and it doesn't have to be by a licensed specialist. But uh, to reiterate the question, how were you able to unleash your inner child's max potential? And how did you heal yourself? And I'll go ahead and framework it based on, again, my experiences. So here's a good quote. The quote goes, in life, you get a, in school, in school, you get a test, then you get the lesson. But in life, you get the lesson, then you learn the test. And a lot of things that I've personally experienced were sharpening me and getting me prepared for my adulthood. So one example, I intend on going into inspirational 
speaking, public speaking. But when I was a child, I would be, I had a stuttering problem. And to get rid of my stutter, they would put me in front of a cesspool pit or a pretty deep pit. And I would have to say bye to all the adults around me as though I was going to fall into the pit. And I would be asked to read. And as soon as I would stutter, I would either be shoved a little or dangled over this pit. Well, all this adrenaline would go to my throat and I would start speaking because the fear was I was afraid of falling into the pit. Now, as an adult, I speak really well. And oftentimes individuals ask, where did you learn to speak so well? And I have to attribute it to back to when I was a child and I was placed in front of that pit. So most recently, I went to Jamaica and I visited some of the places where those traumatic incidents took place. And I went back and told myself that you're okay now. You're safe, just like Taekwon. Pieces of me were left in Jamaica to protect my family that were there so I could never become who I needed to be over here. So I needed to revisit those different versions of myself that came to life because I was in survival mode and try to sync up with that person so we each iteration of myself could heal. So that's my way of unleashing my inner child's max potential and how I did my healing was actually revisiting places I try to run away from, but realizing I couldn't run away from it because it was inside of me. I really like that. Um, I, I like the quote. That's one of that's definitely a great quote, right? You learn the lesson and then you get tested and then in life you get tested and then you learn the lesson. You know, I, I like that a lot. Um, and I think I have, I have a unique experience with that um, in, in, in that when I was younger, right, I, I went to the local high school, right? I went to the local high school in my community and about halfway through my high school career, I ended up getting transferred over into a better school, right, over by the beach, all right? One was a majority minority school. The other school uh, had a much larger white population, right? And I just remember that I was, that it was something awoken me when I went and experienced that different school because I'm talking, as soon as we went out there, right, we're talking freshly baked cookies every day. They had Taco Bell. They had pickup sticks. They had... Uh, Chick-fil-A sandwiches, you could buy them, right? And everything like that. Like even the food was better. Uh, at my old school, we weren't, we didn't have access to use our lockers. Uh, we didn't, we weren't able to check out books for the library or get home or get books that we could take home from, from school. Whereas at this school, we had all the resources that we needed, right? And I just was like, man, this is, this is wild. This is this is very wild that 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 these resources are so prominent here that everything is available and and it started to unlock for me this idea that hey we probably need to get some of this stuff into the schools that I was just at right in the school systems that I was just in and I you know obviously as I grew and I got more education I started to realize some of the reasons behind why we see these large discrepancies in these school systems but just from 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 a, a, a 16 year old perspective, I was like, yo, something's got to change. This ain't right. Right. So we, we got to do something to make this better. And so even now, as I as I pursue all of my goals, I always try to make sure I'm giving back to the students in, in, in a lot of these communities, because the issue is it's, it's not that they're that they don't have all of this potential. It's that we're not matching their potential with the valuable resources needed to reach that max potential. Right. And I think that's something that we really have to focus on uh, in the future. But for me, uh, matching with those resources and, and and starting to have some some higher level conversations. Right. That that mattered a lot to me. And I just want to make sure that we can open that up for for other folks as well, especially children, especially young black children. Right. And I commend you. I commend you, Kenny, because of the work you do every day, uh, being on the young committee with you. It's you do a phenomenal job representing us. I talk to you. I talk to all my family members uh, all the time about the great things that you're doing within our community and instituting the education of unions within the education system because it's not taught. Um, and by you letting them know that you, if you get organized, 
all things are possible, but you just have to organize it. So in the schools, in your community, wherever you're at, it's we're not outnumbered, we're out-organized. Mm, I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's deep. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. All righty. So moving on. Uh, why is mental health a stigma within the Black community, and how do we evolve the culture to get the needed help? I think from from a historical standpoint, I think that the the trauma that our culture has experienced from the time being brought over here in the comparison to what you're going through in the next generation is always thrown up as, as, has been thrown up is that this is mild what you're going through. You can suck it up and you can deal, you can deal with that. Otherwise, otherwise it's a form of inherent weakness for you to do otherwise. Don't whine about it taking place. Do you realize you realize your great grandfather was being beat on his back at 100 plus degrees to work? And you're complaining about the fact you have to do A, B, and C with wheels. Right? So one that's one one of the stigmas that's associated. The other big the other big one for us is that the inherent mistrust based on some of those same factors that the treatment that uh, that had been received so whether 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 we're talking about from from the standpoint of the whole dehumanization of our race of of people to how to balance toward us as turn and the social injustices so now you want me to go into a system and ask for help for those who are perpetrating those type of offenses upon us so a lot of our a lot of our people that even the ones who decide to go and seek help, find for themselves that there are very few uh, black therapists to provide the kind of help that's needed. So the other other places where the fall off, and I commend Taekwon for realizing that your mental health doesn't just come from those licensed professionals because it always started in the church. If it wasn't for the church putting in mind for individuals that well, you need to sing and glorify God in the fact that he still has you here. You have an opportunity to make a, to make a change. So the resources are not there for our community. The healthcare professionals in mental health are not there for our community. So I think that's one, one reason why we even see it in what becomes everyday life. That when you hear kids say, I don't expect to make 18, 16, in my community that when a nine and 10 year old can tell you what the sound of that gun is, right? Which would traumatize other neighborhood. It's something psychologically wrong with that in and of its in and of itself. So for individuals to say, we suck it up and accept that we see some of the same, some of the same things that's taking place. So that's, that's my idea of why some stigmas have been associated with, us and our receiving of the mental health that's needed. And and to add on to um, MVP um, Mallet, you know, um, I'm reminded of generational curses. Mm. And, you know, a generational curse is basically a habit or behavior that's been passed on from, you know, one generation to the next. So I feel in the Black community, um, that's been passed on so much that a lot of people don't know how to break it. And I'm going to blame the church partially because now the, the church has been a stigma so much um, and, uh, in, in our community that a lot of churches still to this day don't know how to handle it. A, a lot of churches still don't offer those services for free and they should. That is a way that, for one, that as a as the black community, how we can overcome this is our people in leadership positions in the church. You know you got people coming. Now everything is all over social media, Facebook, YouTube, streaming services. Talk about mental health. Start talking about it more. It doesn't matter how big, small, large your church is, your congregation is. Talk about it. Offer those counseling sessions. If you can't do it in your own uh, church, Give resources for places that you know can do it. One thing that I tell a lot of people that I know I'm stuck on the church a little bit that I'm ashamed of is that we have so many mega churches 
big black mega churches, and sometimes the focus is in the wrong place where they're focused on, they, they have outreach programs and everything, but they could be doing so much more. The, 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 the cathedral doesn't have to be that big necessarily. You can take some of that money and place it into the schools. Build your own schools. Build your own schools. Build your own uh, community centers. Get those students that are going to school for psychology or counseling or something. Pay for them to go get those licenses and bring them back into the community to help those in the community or get more volunteers to do it. So um, these generational curses, we need to learn how to break them. And I feel it starts, it well, not necessarily start, but it can begin within the church. And, and those who are not in the church, those who are in, you're supposed to go out anyway and shine your light. So we, we have to get back to that as Dr. King, Malcolm X, all of them. Different, it doesn't matter what, what religion, what God you believe in, we need to talk about mental health and no longer make it a stigma, but make it part of our reality that it's okay to cry for men. It's okay to feel down sometimes. You can get back up. It's okay. And you now have an outlet that you can talk about these things. You now have a group of sisters, a group of brothers that you can talk about these things to. So no. that, that's just my point. Thank yeah. you. I just want to touch on that a little bit, right? Because Man. I, I, I like what they're saying, right? They're bringing in this little Christianity right. aspect, which cannot be divorced from the black experience uh, in, in America, right? It's just been so integral to what we've been going through. And a lot of the, the mental health stigma revolves around the fact that black people used to get kidnapped and, and thrown into insane asylums and, and taken away from their families for years and years and years if they were shown any signs of being, oh, you, you have a mental problem. And, and, be and because of that, right, we have to develop safeguards that say, hey, you can't go around saying that you got mental health problems. They're, they're, this, this country is going to eat you alive. Right. They're going to take you away. They're going to test on you. You're going to get electric shock therapy. Like all of these things are happened to a lot of black folks because they said that they were struggling with some type of mental illness or they needed some type of mental health. And so because of that, we have to say, yo, we're not going to go. We're not going to uh, talk about that. You don't have a mental health issue. You just need to pray about it. Right. God's got to be the one that's going to take this away from you, because if we talk about it too loud, these people will take you. Mm. Right. That's the reality that we were dealing with. Right. And, I, and and that that has to be a part of the story, you know. Yeah. And and and, you know, that's, you know, me, I'm 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 a very proud Christian. You know, I, I believe that God can do we can do anything. Right. But the but our the, our system that we were that we were operating in has made us go in a certain direction as opposed to other ones, right? We can't talk about even nowadays and that that it continues, right? It's a cycle, right? If you're if you're if you're a kid and you're told, "Hey, you can't talk about mental health or you need to just, you know, uh, man up, if you will," right? Figure it out, then you become an adult and what has been ingrained in you for years and years and years. Then you have a kid. What you going to say to that kid? Right. And I think that's we have to remember that a lot of the a lot, a lot of these issues that we have, these stigmas around mental health come from uh, th this 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 legacy of oppression. Tremendous, tremendous points. And I, I'd like to share an experience with you um, to tie into this before going on to our next question. I, I was at the barbershop and there were a few professional athletes that were in there. And the topic came up about our first love. And I went on to share that my first love was a dog. So literally my first time that I remember being in love was with an animal because of certain things similar to uh, Taekwondo that was happening to me as well. So I remember also my first heartbreak was with the same dog because dogs do what dogs do, um, reading between the lines. So I remember my heart being broken and I remember sharing that with all the gentlemen that were in the barbershop. 
and they ridiculed, they laughed at me. Uh, one gentleman said, I guess we're not going to bring you to the Dumb Friends League. And I chuckled and I just let the laughing go by. After the laughing concluded, I went on to finish the story about why an animal ended up being my first love because as a child, I had this energy inside of me that I did not know how to deal with nor anyone around me to speak to, nor did my environment made it safe to speak to. At the conclusion of it, um, as a few of the gentlemen were leaving, they came up to me and they said, look, we've experienced some trauma, not as significant as yours, but you actually have us thinking about some of the things that has happened to us and you know, we appreciate it. So just by us being vulnerable, but being able to withstand. So you might not have told you, so when they ridiculed me as a kid, that was also a traumatic incident for me too, because I was ridiculed as a child. So as a child, that was the test. As an adult now, the lesson is don't be afraid. Don't stop your messaging when adults are ridiculing you. You've been through this as a child. So the twig is bent, the tree shall grow. Your tree, your branches are strong so you can withstand the ridicule and share your message. Be a vessel for the message. And it really doesn't matter because you've been armored up. And that's when I go back to the tests that I've been tested that have been given to me. Now in my adulthood, when I look back at it through faith, I actually see that I was being molded and being created and that I was never going to be let go because I was being taken care of uh, by the Father above. So just thought I shared that and that your story can actually inspire others, but it comes at a great sacrifice. And I believe that we all have the tools and have been equipped with it at some point to be a messenger, to be a voice, to help others find their voice as well. All right. So moving on to our next question, are you familiar with Black Wall Street and how can we regain the spirit that pioneered the thriving community of Black Wall Street? The simple, the simple answer to that is yes, very familiar with Black Wall Street, taught it to my children. The hard answer to that is how do we get on one accord as a group of individuals, as a race of people moving in the same direction is uh, uh, the million dollar question. You know, so many conquers and divide that, and it's not just, it's not just outside of our culture, but within our culture. Because we think about the fact that uh, uh, it wasn't white people who developed paper bag tests. That was us. That was, that, that was, that was us. So, so in, in, some, in some aspects, when, when individuals have been programmed, think about Carter Goodson and the miseducation of the Negro. And it continues to go on. I mean, even to the point, even to the point where someone knew systematically what was taking place that even today, we don't want the education to continue because we don't want our children impacted by the history that we lived and put people through. So the million dollar question is how and what will bring us on, on the one accord? Because I agree it was, it was there, it was strong and that group was working together and doing, doing great things and it just put a fear in a number of number of individuals i'm interested hearing from from the youth because it is going to be it's going to be it's going to be the youth that propels this forward and the changes that needs to take place in our society because because of the connection with not just being black but the fact the fact that the diverse associations that you have that a number of us did not have because it was one illegal at times for that to take place, and others were that there was no desire, because uh, as Andre was saying, no one willing to take the ridicule of uh, of being a nigger lover, if you would, you know, or any of those uh, derogatory things. I I just want to piggyback on um, what uh, Brother Davis says. Uh, yes, I'm I'm aware of the Black Wall Street. Um, and I don't think it's not taught to this next generation enough about what happened. Yes, we could have another Black Wall Street. Um, you've never heard, I know in my lifetime and maybe David's lifetime as um, young entertainers gaining so much wealth. But they're selfish. 
It's all about me, me, me. It's not about enlightening our community, enhancing our community, teaching, um, teaching the next generation about um, if I'm going to put my funds in this community, you can be the next CEO of a company or something. This next generation has lost uh, that uh, respect or uh, they just a selfish generation. Everybody wants to be on social media showing what I have and what I got. But they don't get on social media to show I have this, but this is what I'm doing with this to empower the next generation, to build schools, to build communities. It's very few of them that are doing it now. So I think uh, this, uh, this Black Wall Street it can happen again. We can build our own communities. We can build our own uh, schools and business. But this next generation, uh, I see as a lost cause. They are selfish generation. It's all about me. So I, I, I want to... Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was going to jump in. <laughs> uh, you, want, you want me to go or you can go? Go ahead. You got it. All right, so um, I was just going to jump in on that. One, I do feel um, it's an education thing um, because growing up in school, I don't really remember them ever talking about Black Wall Street. I remember discussion, discussing uh, Black Wall Street when I got, you know what, I take that back, maybe my 11th, 12th grade um, year in high school, but that was because I had an Afri- African-American studies class and which was the same teacher, same teacher. I still communicate with her to this day. She was the same teacher that um, that spoke positivity into my life and helped me push and go forward and go to a, a black college, HBCU. So I say that to say this. I think it's part of education. So we need to teach our kids, one, what is how to become an entrepreneur. Like my girls, I have like a Shea body butter business thing or whatever that I do it. And it's not in my name. I made sure that it's in my kids' name. I'm working on LLC and everything for them and for them to learn the trade and how to do it and all this stuff to teach them how to take ownership of something of their own. Not only that, can we have another Black Wall Street? Yes, we can. In fact, we actually do. Um, in Stonecrest, uh, Georgia or Atlanta, Georgia, Stonecrest Mall, they they actually, the community came together and bought up this old warehouse, whatever it was, um, and now it's all Black-owned. Of course, they had help with the church. The church, um, New Birth, helped also, which is something I've been saying. The church needs to help also. So they have this property, and they have over 100-plus um, um, retail shops in there, and it's all black owned. If you was to actually Google Black Wall Street Atlanta, mm-hmm. it'll come up, and you'll see all the shops, and they still have space also. So if anyone's looking for um, space, I guess that's a plug for them to go ahead market yourself in your own community. And I think what what they're doing is a great thing for our community, um, especially being I guess I don't call it Black Mecca Atlanta. Because there's other places that's much more populated with black people than Atlanta. But one of the black meccas, if we take that same format, we know the original in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We take the new format now and start using that and and, and being transplanting it other places. We can have black Wall Streets all over the U.S. and beyond. But we have to be willing to follow the model and uh, of what they did, the outline of what they're currently doing in Atlanta. If we can come together, because it's the together part that's the that's the issue of who wants to be the head, and everyone wants to lead, but no wants one to wants follow. to follow. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to get on on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny, I, I, I'm done. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I just want to kind of piggyback on some of the stuff that was said. So I, I don't believe you know that this generation uh, coming up is is a lost cause. But I have to say that right. I'm a part of said generation, 
So I have to, uh, I got, I got, I got to say that. But I, I, I do think that one of the issues is that there is a much higher barrier to entry nowadays than there was in the past, right? If we want to create a Black Wall Street, right? Talking about buying properties, you're talking about uh, creating organizations, you're talking about, uh, 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 you know, the, the, uh, creating a financial district for, for Black folks, right? The barrier to entry to do that is a lot higher than it was when they were able to create it in the first place, right? And, and there were several of them, but creating these in the first place, uh, there, there was a lower barrier to entry. Uh, now, and this, this all becomes a socioeconomic issue, right? Because now, due to the fact that we've seen our productivity go up so much just as individuals, right? We have this technology, we have these skills, and our productivity has gone up, but our wages have stagnated, right? So since our wages have stagnated, that means our ability to develop and, and grow our wealth is diminished for our generation more so than generations of the past, right? And this is, this is mathematical. We can, we can show it on paper, right? So we have a harder time even building wealth. And when it comes to wealth uh, accumulation, right, the, uh, just black folks in general, right, we are at the bottom of the racial groups. We are at the bottom and we have been at the bottom for, for a long time and we haven't been able to, to, to escape it. You know, about 40% of black families have zero or negative wealth, right? And so what we have to do is we have, if we want to create a black Wall Street, we have to address the wealth inequities that exist and have existed in this country. Because if we, because because Black Wall Street, we, that was something that was addressing the, the inequities and it was destroyed, it was taken from us, right? And, and what that means, when, when you talk about taking away Black Wall Street, right, and what that does for the legacy of Black folks, you're talking about taking away business knowledge, education knowledge, institutional knowledge, that's not getting passed down, right? That, that, that now we have to learn things fresh. We have to ex have these new experiences, right? Instead of relying on the experiences of our forefathers because they were killed and their businesses destroyed, right? And every time that happens, we have to start over and try to figure out, oh, well, let's go through these, let's, let's build our businesses from the bottom up, right? We got to stop having to be, build our businesses from the bottom up. We have to stop having to do that. That is how we excel as, as a people. That is how we, we will be able to have this Black Wall Street. But we have to change the game. And it's going to start. It's not just by uh, saving. We have to have literal intervention into to, to, to undo the harms that, that the legacy of oppression has uh, levied on the Black community. Mm -hmm. And I always, loved, I always love our conversations around this topic, uh, Kenny. And I'd like to share with you all something that I'm doing in my family to recreate this. So learning from the union, I have proposed to my family, everyone contribute $10 per month. For the individuals who are not contributing, I say we have sponsors. So I can sponsor five people in my family, that's $50 a month, and so can others in my family. Mm -hmm. If we get to 50 people at $10, that's $500. Now. I'm creating a committee called Hustlers within my family. So that 500, what we do now is we can use that 500 to buy some food to make plates. So I'm Jamaican, so we're going to buy make Jamaican food and we're going to resell it. 100% of the profit comes right back into this pool of money that we're collecting. Also, I have siblings that they buy these rare Jordans and they go onto a site called Stock Exchange. They'll sell it. At least four of my relatives does that. And they've all committed to at least selling one shoes and dedicating it to this fund of money right here. Now, this fund of money now, it's initially $500 at $10 per people. But you see now with selling food, with selling shoes, with investing in cryptocurrency, with leveraging the skill sets that's within the family, everybody has a collective goal to see this pot of money grows. Now, what do we do with this pot of money? So there are matriarchs that sit over the pot of money to talk about trust. And so my family may not trust me. So we have my mom, my grand aunt, and my granddad. They're the matriarchs of the family. So they sit over and they're responsible for when relatives contact them to say, hey, I may need assistance with this. So we're frameworking it and building it out. And I think that it's a good place to start from in your home, 
in your community, just amongst a group of friends, because as that ripple effect, it will start rippling outwards because other individuals who've caught wind off it are asking questions now like, hey, can we get into the think tank of developing this? Because I've always had a thought, but I've never really had the community to develop and talk about it. So that's just one way that my family are looking at taking care of our own needs internally and maybe developing a model in our family to then offer it externally to others to say this is one option of what it could look like. And, you know, Brother Dre, I'm thinking about, you know, in my childhood that I think that my family had their own black Wall Street but didn't know what to do with it. I can remember my grandmother in South Carolina. She would be the candy lady. You go to her house and you buy candy. You buy chili bears, the little ices in the Dixie cups. She would sell saltine crackers. She would make wine. She was an entrepreneur, but she didn't know what to do with it as far as maybe getting a store. Um, So she didn't know how to pass that generational knowledge down to the next generation would, would have been me and my first cousins. Then I'm thinking, fast forward, growing up in Harlem, I can remember my aunt and my mom and them selling dinners. Um, my, my aunt would sell, have card parties, selling dinner, selling liquor. They made this wealth of money, but they didn't know what to do with it. I, hear, I used to hear my mom and, and her and her friends and my aunts and them talk about the rent parties, how they would have rent parties to help pay their neighbors or their friends' rent. People come in, they pay two, three dollars. We're talking about back in the 50s, 60s. They were generating all this wealth, all this money, so they can pay the next help pay the next person rent so they wouldn't be evicted in the street in Harlem. Because back then they would put you in the street from what I'm told furniture and everything. So everybody in the neighborhood knew you got evicted because you couldn't pay your rent. So the community came together and they had rent parties. But I'm saying we have we have the knowledge of how we can generate uh, generational wealth. Um, but we are not taught. Once we generate this wealth, what do we do with it? Now, everybody's an entrepreneur now. You know, everybody go in their kitchen and they make up something now. We are entrepreneur. But are you being an entrepreneur to enhance the next generation? Are you just being an entrepreneur just to enhance your pocket and yourself? That's the question. Mm. Yes. Phenomenal, phenomenal point. Phenomenal point, uh, Deb. Um, And it's a good segue into our last question. What does it mean to be Black within AFGE? Um. I'm, well, I'm going to start with that question. I think now being black and AFG, AFGE means that we are recognized. They see us now. Before, I've had many of my white counterparts, good friends, and always would say to me, when I see you, I don't see color. But how can you say that to me? I'm a big black woman. And how can you say you don't see color? That means you don't see me. You don't recognize me. You don't recognize my opinions, my thoughts, my feeling. But I now, the sense, uh, because of black and because of other things, we are being recognized. That's that's my opinion. I see. I see being black and AFGE as a microcosm of this whole society we live in, yet we stand, we stand on one accord with a slogan about solidarity, but we won't walk it out and we won't challenge it, right? So I see it, I, but I also appreciate the fact that within AFGE is an opportunity for growth, to learn about how systems operate and how we can go about influencing and changing those systems. That opportunity, agree. But I think the bigger part is that, in this, and, and when we talked to Kendrick and Taekwon, Taekwon talked earlier about why there was a need to form black, because we won't pull together in, in solidarity. 
there was a need to form Cisco because the people say, oh, we don't see that pool for us dealing with this as a, a solidarity. I see it from this stand, this position that I'm in as, as MVP is that in the AFL of uh, some of my states, the forefront is not dealing with voter suppression, right? So why? Because in my mind, I keep seeing who's being mostly impacted by that. So I see us being just a microcosm of uh, the society that we're in. Take one. Okay. <sighs> well, what does it mean to be black within AFGE? Um, honestly, I didn't really know what it meant until I actually joined or became a steward. Because before, I was just a member, paying my dues, and then always asking questions because I see all this injustice and always saying, why is it that this person's getting promoted or elevated over this person who has more experience and been here longer? And just always wondered, and then come joining and become an actual steward I'm trying not to say it. <laughs> Go ahead, King. But there, there, there was, in a sense, there was still forms of segregation um, and isolation where particular groups were disenfranchised still, especially within Social Security. Um, so... It's always been weird to me, and I know this is off question a little bit, but since I've worked for Social Security, I've only seen to this day maybe three black males in a, in a management role since, since I've been here. It took almost... Seven years, now I take that back because Rodney Taylor was the uh, area regional commissioner. He swore me in, but he didn't retire. But after him, you know, I set a goal. Oh, I see him. I got excited. So I'm like, okay, that has nothing to do with union. But um, but seeing that, I, 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 I don't know. I'm just lost for words. I just feel that our cons constituency of black was much needed, at, especially at this time, um, especially with all the injustice still going on in society. And there's certain things, I'm really trying not to bite, but I'm really trying not to say this. You know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Because some of my friends look at me crazy when I say this stuff. But I'm like, no. There are organizations for every other group or race. But yet, the people who have been disenfranchised longer than anyone else in this country still don't have a lot of things for us. The Asian American community they have a whole new law that protects them. The people will say, well, black people have the civil rights. No, we don't. The civil rights was put in place for all people. So there's still nothing specifically for black people, but for others, they have so many things. So I feel AFGE and Black still has a long way to go because there's still those same discrepancies within our federal agencies, within federal positions. So to truly be unified and be uh, and, and to show solidarity, we need to make sure it is equal across the board for everyone not just those specific groups of people. 
It needs to be equal across the board. And I'm going to leave that alone. Absolutely. Thank you, Taekwon. Um, phenomenal input. Good point. Let me, let, just, for, just for a point of reference, as you talked about how slow it is to come about, in 1995, in a city full of HBCUs, there were no black employees in AFGE district office. 1995. Wow. 27 years ago, there was no black employees, right? But AFG's been around 80 so years. It's uh, for 80 years, about 90 years uh, or so now. You know, so to Taekwon's point about how to expect the slow progress of us as a black group compared to other individuals and you know, and I mean, even when the issue was raised, right, those of us who were raising it were being accused of causing dissension. Because you raise and you raise an obvious, you know, but but and I and that's why I keep my pushes for my pushes for the youth who are coming forward. Don't let people silence your voice. You know, you know, when something is not right and needs to be addressed, irregardless how some other individuals who, who feel about it because the naysayers weren't individuals. All naysayers weren't individuals who, uh, uh, who look different than us. There's individuals who don't want the apple cart upset. Yeah. And I, I just, I don't want to say very much more than them. I think that they, they pretty much encapsulated what it means to be black in AFGE, you know, and I know we're pushing up on our, on our hard stop here. But, uh, you know, I just want to say it's, it's always a constant reminder that we can't separate labor rights and civil rights. They go hand in hand, right? And that's something that we continue to fight for, right, as, as being Black members in AFGE. So I definitely, definitely want to keep that, keep that going or keep that in our minds as we close out here. Thank you, Kenny. Oh, I have to say my soul is full. I got more than what I bargained for uh, today. So I would like to thank you, our guest, David Mullet, AFGE National Vice President for District 5, Deborah Toussaint, National Women's Advisory Coordinator for District 2, Reverend Dr. Taekwon Murray, AFGE Black Board Member, and Kendrick Roberson, AFGE Black Chairman. And thank you for listening to the AFGE Young Podcast. New episodes are made available every two weeks and are streamed anywhere you listen to your podcast. Be well. This podcast is a production of the AFGE National Young Committee, BUG, Bridging Union Gaps Initiative. To learn more about the AFGE Young Program, visit our website at www.afge.org young or our Facebook page by searching at young AFGE. 